Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Akashi Shizuko was a 31-year-old seamstress turned cashier, and she was on her way to an employee training seminar. She boarded the subway car at Kasumigasaki Station, a major transfer point on the underground line, which would take her to her final destination in West Tokyo. But once she was on the train, she immediately collapsed into a vegetative state. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of History of the 90s, we continue our look at the rise of doomsday cults at the end of the 20th century. Today, the story of a group in Japan that had a dangerous belief in the impending apocalypse. On March 20th, 1995, five men boarded separate subway trains headed for downtown Tokyo. It was the height of the morning rush hour. Nine million commuters were making their way to work. These men, all highly educated professionals, were about to carry out a deadly attack. Each carried at least two packages wrapped in newspaper and a long umbrella with a sharpened tip. At exactly the same time, they placed their packages on the floor and punctured them with their umbrellas. Then they ran off. Within minutes, commuters began gasping for air and collapsing, as the deadly sarin gas contained inside the packages began to seep out and permeate the air. The men that were responsible for this sarin attack were members of Om Shenrikyo. The group was founded in 1984 in Tokyo, Japan, by Shoko Asahara. His real name was Chuzio Matsumoto, and he was born partially blind, the sixth of seven children whose parents were poor shopkeepers. After failing to get into medical school, Asahara studied pharmacology and acupuncture. He eventually opened his own pharmacy, specializing in Chinese medicine. But in 1982, he was arrested for selling fake remedies— And after being convicted of fraud, his pharmacy went bankrupt. Around this time, Asahara had joined a small new religious movement called Aganshu, which was a blend of Hinduism and Buddhism. By the mid-80s, he opened his own one-room yoga training school, which focused on using yoga and herbal medicines for healing. He drew people to the school by handing out pamphlets and preaching on street corners. In 1989, the government granted his school legal status as a certified religious organization, which he called Om Shinrikyo, or Supreme Truth. Like the religious group Asahara had previously belonged to, Om based its doctrines on a combination of ancient Buddhist and Hindu beliefs, along with his own apocalyptic prophecies. Soon, Asahara began calling himself the ultimate savior, and he claimed he had supernatural powers, like ESP and the ability to levitate. He preached that he had been selected by the Hindu god Shiva to create a utopian society. 
At its height in the early 90s, the group reportedly had branches in six countries, including Japan, Russia, and the U.S., with as many as 40,000 followers. Nearly all of the members in Japan were in their early to mid-20s, and many had attended the country's top universities. Professor Paul Midford is director of the Japan program at the Norwegian University for Science and Technology. He says many of Ohm's members had become disillusioned with the pressure of Japanese society to succeed. The members of this group were people who had been people who'd gone to elite universities and somehow had fallen out of the, the narrow kind of track that leads to promotion into uh, prestige, you know, elite government ministries or corporations and kind of falling outside of that for one reason or another. They became alienated and uh, were attracted to this religion and um, kind of brought their great skills and knowledge and, and uh, brain power with them. Many of the people who joined Ohm were sometimes called otaku, young people who were shut-ins who spent most of their free time absorbed in computers and comics. They were from a generation that grew up watching anime, and many had graduated to gekaka, which are book-length comics drawn with realistic pictures, which are often ultra-violent and depict rape, murder, and a retrograde future. Those who joined the group were required to sever all contact with their families and to donate all of their assets to the group. With the help of these young scientists and engineers, Asahara built a network of warehouses, chemical facilities, and computer firms. And by 1992, Ohm had amassed more than a billion dollars. Asahara organized the cult like a government. It had about 20 ministries— The Ministry of Science ran the chemical lab. The Ministry of Food provided two meals a day to followers, which was seldom more than a bowl of instant noodles, three hard biscuits, or a bowl of boiled veggies. Actually, conditions for most members were pretty bleak. Former cult members say new disciples were often given drugs intravenously, deprived of sleep and food, and forced to drink two and a half gallons of hot water each day until they throw up, purging their system. Members lived in small, cell-like rooms and were forced to take part in rituals, which included doing rapid breathing exercises and meditating with the help of a monotonous drone of devices taped to their heads. Some trainees even practiced the disciplines of staying underwater or in closed, airless spaces for prolonged periods. Anyone who tried to leave was severely punished with electric shocks. As the cult grew, the families of members raised the alarm and complaints of kidnapping, brainwashing, and abuse within Om Shinrikyo became more common. But no one could have predicted what the group would soon be capable of. Satsumi Sakamoto was a 33-year-old Japanese lawyer known for his work against cults. He had successfully led a class-action suit against the Unification Church on behalf of relatives of its members. And he was also working on a lawsuit against Om Shinrikyo. Sakamoto apparently was hoping to demonstrate that Om members, similar to members of the Unification Church, which are often known as Moonies, did not join the group voluntarily, but were lured in by deception and were probably being held against their will by threats and manipulations. 
On October 31, 1989, Sakamoto was successful in persuading Asahara to submit to a blood test to check for his special power that he claimed was present in his body. The results were normal, and there was no sign of anything unusual. If this were made public, it could have been embarrassing or damaging to Asahara because it was one of the ways that he lured new members in. So at 3 a.m. on November 4th, 1989, several Om Shinrikyo members entered Sakamoto's apartment through an unlocked door. Sakamoto was struck on the head with a hammer. His 29-year-old wife was beaten. Their infant son was injected with potassium chloride, a drug usually used to cause cardiac arrest. While the two adults struggled, they were also injected with the potassium chloride. Sakamoto's wife died from the toxic injection, but Sakamoto himself did not die as quickly and was strangled. The family's remains were placed in metal drums and hidden in three separate rural areas so that in case the bodies were uncovered, police might not link the three incidents. Police were unable to resolve the case at the time, although some of Sakamoto's colleagues publicly voiced their suspicions of the group. Their bodies weren't found until after the 1995 Tokyo subway attack when the perpetrators revealed the locations. The murder and the growing clamor from cult members' families caused increased attention from the authorities, and feeling the mounting pressure, Ohm began preparing for the end of days by experimenting with a number of deadly chemicals. Luckily, most of their experiments failed. In 1990, the group tried to create botulinum, an extremely deadly neurotoxic chemical produced by bacteria. Members loaded the fermented chemical sludge into several spray trucks and then drove past and sprayed two U.S. naval bases, Merida Airport in Tokyo, a Japanese government building, and the Imperial Palace. The sludge, though, hadn't purified properly, and the neurotoxin had no effect. In 1992, Asahara led 40 Ohm followers to Zaire in an attempt to acquire Ebola samples, but their mission was unsuccessful. Ohm again tried spraying the neurotoxic chemical botulinum from a truck in June 1993. This time, the target was the elaborate wedding of Crown Prince Naruhito, who is now Japan's emperor. Like the first time, the neurotoxin was not made properly and had no effect. There were also attempts by the group to spray anthrax, but that attempt also failed, and it resulted in a large number of complaints about bad odors, but no infections. Finally, cult scientists began to focus on manufacturing sarin gas at an isolated sheep farm in Western Australia. In the summer of 1993, about 25 members of Ohm moved to the rural farm where they conducted gruesome tests on sheep and managed to kill 29 with their homemade gas. Then, on the night of June 27, 1994, the cult released clouds of sarin gas in a residential area with the help of a converted refrigerator truck. The attack took place near the homes of several judges in the central Japanese city of Matsumoto. Asahara was being sued by a landowner over a real estate dispute, and he feared he was going to lose the case, so Ohm decided to attack the three judges overseeing the matter. Eight people died and 500 others were injured, including the judges. As a result, they were unable to deliver a verdict in the case involving Asahara. 
The attack in Matsumoto also served as a test to see how efficient sarin gas was as a weapon of mass destruction. They used the residents of Matsumoto as their guinea pigs. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So you might be wondering, what is sarin gas? Well, sarin is an extremely toxic, colorless, odorless gas that works on the nervous system, disrupting all bodily functions. Exposure to the chemical usually means the pupils will shrink to pinpoints, the mouth and lungs will fill with saliva and bodily fluid, and the heart will begin to slow. Some victims may experience seizures. Death usually comes very quickly. Sarin has been called the poor man's atom bomb because it can kill just as swiftly. There are similar agents to sarin that have common uses. Malathion, for instance, is used against agricultural pests around the world. Sarin is a kind of pesticide for humans, but it kills by crippling the nervous system, making it impossible to breathe. There is an antidote for sarin. It's called atropine, a cheap and effective medication available on all crash carts in North American hospitals. Sarin gas was developed in 1938 in Nazi Germany by a team of scientists who were looking for a better pesticide that targeted the nervous system of insects. When several of the scientists were exposed to the chemical, they became quite ill. The Nazi government heard about this, and they told the scientists to figure out a way to weaponize the chemical. However, it was never used as a chemical weapon during World War II. The first time it was used as a weapon was an attack in Halabja, one of the deadliest chemical attacks in history. Approximately 5,000 people, mostly women and children, were killed, and many others died later of cancer and other illnesses. Researchers believe the contamination passed not only into the soil and water, but into the gene pool as well. Because since the attack, an abnormal number of children have been born in this region with genetic malformations. Sarin has been used more recently in Syria, first in 2013, when according to the United Nations, a suburb of Damascus was hit by government-backed rockets containing the deadly nerve agent. The death toll varies, but somewhere around 1,500 people died, including 500 children. Then in 2017, the world watched in horror as sarin was unleashed in Syria again. Images of dead, poisoned children spread across the world. About 80 people, including at least 25 children, were killed. More than 300 others were injured. But back in 1994, after the successful experiment in Matsumoto, Ohm began planning what would become one of the deadliest bioterrorist attacks in history. This is the timeline of what unfolded on that fateful day in 1995. The deadly attack began at 10 minutes before 8 a.m. on March 20th, as five men boarded subway trains carefully selected for maximum impact. They blended in with other passengers headed for the center of Tokyo. 
By 8.15, all five converged on the district of Kasumigaseki, where most of Japan's government offices are located. Each man was carrying two to three packages wrapped in newspaper. Inside were plastic bags of liquid sarin. The men ranged from 27 to 48 years old and were all highly educated. Three had physics degrees, one a degree in artificial intelligence, and the eldest was a cardiologist who had recently quit his job to join the cult. The plan was for the men to all puncture their sarin packages at exactly 8 a.m. and quickly escape the trains. They were each carrying an umbrella with a sharpened tip, and they also carried a syringe with the antidote just in case they were exposed to the chemical. But a couple of things didn't go according to plan. The cardiologist had second thoughts and punctured just one package before exiting the train. There was just one small hole in his package, and the sarin barely leaked out. People on board that train suffered just minor poisoning, and there were no serious injuries. But on board another train, the packages were punctured effectively, and sarin gas leaked rapidly into the air. Within two stops, people started coughing and collapsing. Normally, sarin is odorless, but the cult scientists had not purified it properly, so it smelled like burning rubber. When the train stopped, people came pouring out onto the platform, gasping for breath. Confusion and panic filled the air. No one had any idea what was going on. Meanwhile, sarin gas was leaking from the train into the station, spreading the poison even further. Similar situations took place on the other trains. Soon, subway entrances looked like battlefields, with poisoned commuters laying on the ground, convulsing and gasping for air. Some had blood gushing from their nose and mouth. In some cases, once the trains were cleared of people, they were sent on down the line, with the deadly packages still on board. Unknowingly, the sarin gas spread even further. When workers finally found the packages, they had no idea what they were, and they brought them out onto the platform and exposed even more people. In one case, the workers who found packages took them to a small security office. While they waited for police to arrive, they too became ill from the toxic fumes. After the attack, the five men rendezvoused at a getaway car and then made their way through morning traffic to a hideout. One of the men had to use his syringe of antidote, but he survived. When news broke about the attack, the scenes on television were horrifying. A disturbing new reality seemed to arrive overnight. Every person in every large city suddenly felt vulnerable as they saw commuters stumbling out of trains onto platforms, vomiting with nosebleeds, foaming at the mouth and convulsing. No one was sure what the chemical was or who could be responsible for such terror. 13 people died as a result of the attack and nearly 5,000 more were injured, some with permanent brain damage. Among the dead were a 76-year-old retiree, a 29-year-old man whose wife was expecting their first child in a month, a subway operator and a station manager who died after trying to clean up the poison. Once it was determined that the poison was in fact sarin gas, experts were quick to point out that hundreds of thousands of people could have been killed if the poison had been deployed properly. In Tokyo, you see the sarin liquid was placed in plastic bottles that were wrapped in newspaper. 
The packages were punctured and the liquid ran out onto the floor of the subway. To be most effective, nerve gas is best delivered via aerosol spray. Experts believed this might be the beginning of a new age. This was the first significant time terrorists used a weapon of mass destruction on an urban area. Remember, this was long before terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center buildings in New York. In a newspaper article two days after the attack, a terrorism specialist was quoted as saying, we've definitely crossed a threshold. This is the cutting edge of high-tech terrorism for the year 2000 and beyond. It's the nightmare scenario that people have quietly talked about for years coming true. And many pointed out that society was extremely vulnerable to these kinds of attacks. Terrorists could easily poison a city's water supply or release lethal gases like sarin into sports stadiums, convention centers, or theaters. Some predicted it was just a matter of time before an attack like this occurred in North America. Two days after the attack, police focused their investigation on Om Shenrikyo. More than a 1,000 police officers backed by a chemical warfare unit raided two dozen locations linked to the cult. The main focus was their rural retreat near a mountain hamlet on the scenic slopes below Mount Fuji. Television footage showed hundreds of police in riot gear marching down a dusty road toward the cult's ramshackle collection of buildings. For many, it brought back memories of the Branch Davidian raid in Waco, Texas, that occurred two years earlier. But in this case, no weapons were used and no one was injured. Police cut through locked doors with power saws. Some officers even carried caged canaries to detect the presence of poison gas, a bygone technique deployed in coal mines. Once inside the main dojo, police were shocked to find about 50 cult members suffering severe malnutrition from fasting. They found one woman locked in a box. Other captives had been drugged. But 40-year-old Shoko Asahara was nowhere to be found. Before the end of the day, police seized barrels and barrels of chemicals used to make sarin, $11 million in cash and 10 kilos of gold. They also found bottles of the antidote to sarin, gas masks, and chemical protective suits. Over the coming days, police would seize enough chemicals to make enough sarin to kill over 4 million people. Ohm denied any role in the attack. They said they were being framed by the government. A spokesperson said the chemicals weren't being used to make nerve gas. They were being used to weld and process computer chips. Professor Midford was living in Tokyo at the time of the attack in 1995. About three days after the attacks, somebody came through my apartment building and probably most other buildings in that area in southern Tokyo and the Otaku region where I lived and put pro Om Shinrikyo pamphlet in my mailbox. I I remember reading that and it, it talked about the JCIA or the Japanese CIA and claimed that they had done this to frame Aum Shinrikyo, and they were also blaming the U.S. and that sort of thing. So it was, it was a big conspiracy theory. Initially, police didn't publicly link the cult to the attack. They said the raids were carried out as part of other ongoing investigations against Aum. But then five days after the attack, Japanese police opened a murder investigation against the group. Officers raided the cult's main compound again, 
this time armed with a murder warrant. Inside, they found a hidden room with a highly sophisticated chemical laboratory capable of producing a large quantity of nerve gas. The secret door to the room was hidden behind a huge Hindu statue. Police also found rooms or underground containers that had been used to confine people who tried to flee the cult. Then two other shocking incidents took place. First, on March 28th, eight days after the attack, Japan's top police official in charge of the investigation was shot four times by a masked assailant. The chief of the National Police Agency was leaving his condo on the way to work when a gunman wearing a black raincoat and a white surgical mask shot him in the shoulder, stomach, and leg. He underwent surgery and survived. The attacker had fled by bicycle, and it wasn't until a year later that an OM member and former Tokyo police officer confessed to the shooting. Then, seven weeks after the attack on the night of April 23rd, 36-year-old Hideo Murai, OM's top scientist, was heading into OM's Tokyo headquarters. There was a huge crowd of reporters and police standing outside the building as Murai approached. Suddenly, a man broke through the crowd and began to stab and slash Murai repeatedly. Television networks broke into regular programming across the country to broadcast the attack, and footage showed a knife plunging into Murai's side. He underwent surgery at hospital, but died later from blood loss and internal injuries. The attacker called himself a right-wing extremist. He told police he wanted to punish Murai because of the trouble caused by the cult. Professor Midford said this kind of attack was not uncommon in Japan. Japan has a history of of that. Uh, A major socialist leader was stabbed to death in the early 60s. Uh, Former Ambassador Reichauer, the U.S. Ambassador Edwin Reichauer, was stabbed by a rightist in in the early 60s. So there's actually kind of a history of that. A a former prime minister was too, and uh, actually a right-wing prime minister after he left office in 1960. And so, yeah, this sort of thing is is quite common. Nearly two months after the attack, Japanese police finally made their first major arrest in the case. They arrested Ohm's intelligence minister, Yoshihiro Inu. He was the suspected field commander in the subway attack and was taken into custody after police found a notebook in which he kept a record of timetables and numbers of passengers who used the subway lines where the sarin nerve gas was released. But still, Shoka Asahara remained at large. Japanese authorities reportedly know the whereabouts of cult leader Shoko Asahara. Camera crews got his car without him in it on its way out of Tokyo on Saturday. But police have it closed in because they are afraid of what his followers might do. While grim-faced troops have uncovered a powerful arsenal of chemicals, enough to make 50 tons of the nerve gas used in a subway attack, they don't know if cult members have additional sarin hidden away. Finally, on May 15, 1995, hundreds of police officers stormed Ohm's compound at the foot of Mount Fuji. They arrested 40-year-old cult leader Shoko Asahara and 14 other top followers and charged them in connection with the sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway system. Police said they found Asahara sitting in silent meditation in a hidden room beneath the third floor of the Truth Building Number 6 at the cult's massive compound. 
The room apparently resembled a large coffin with a foam floor. Asahara, with long flowing hair and wearing a lavender robe, was put in a police van. And as he headed away along a rural highway, the entire thing was broadcast on Japanese TV networks. Some compared it at the time to the police chase of O.J. Simpson that had happened less than a year earlier. There are several theories about why Ohm decided to release the poison gas in the Tokyo subway system. Most center around the belief that Ohm wanted to provoke a world war. They believed the U.S. would be blamed for the attack, and this would lead to a full-out nuclear war between Japan and America, which would eventually bring about the end of the world. Only Ohm followers would survive, and they would live in a new utopian world. It took many years, but eventually 189 cult members were brought to trial in connection with the subway attack. All but one were convicted. Thirteen were sentenced to death, including Ohm leader Soko Asahara and four of the attackers. The fifth attacker received a life sentence in exchange for his cooperation with the police investigation after his arrest. In July 2018, 23 years after the attack, with all appeals exhausted, Soko Asahara and six other own leaders, including the group's lead scientist and the lead chemist, were executed by hanging. Several others, including the four attackers, remain on death row. Despite the deadly legacy of Om Shinrikyo, the group continues to exist, but in a new way. Ohm splintered into two groups after the attack, Aleph and Hikaranoa, also known as the Circle of Light. The government didn't disband the groups. Instead, they put them under surveillance. Professor Midford explains that Japan has a very complicated history with new religions. So during World War II, or um, even before in the 1930s, when Japan really turned militarist and kind of state Shinto became almost the official religion, many new religions were suppressed, uh, including Soka Gakkai, which is this um, new Buddhist, relatively new Buddhist sect. Its leaders were imprisoned. Um, at least one of their leaders died in prison during World War II. And because of that experience, Soka Gakkai has been very suspicious of the state very much opposed to any kind of state authority or law that would give the state the ability to suppress or control religions. Surveillance of the two religious sects means the authorities can conduct on-site inspections and other checks. It also means the groups must report the number of believers they have. But in 2018, the Japanese government lifted surveillance on Hikari Noah after they argued in a lawsuit that they have rejected Ohm's beliefs. They currently have about 150 members. Aleph, which remains under official scrutiny, still follows Asahara's teachings and, in fact, has deepened its ties to Ohm's doctrines. According to officials, it has 1,500 members and growing. Thanks for listening to this episode on the mysterious doomsday cult, Om Shenrikyo. Coming up, we'll be looking at Heaven's Gate, another doomsday cult, this one set in California. We'll take a look back at their strange story, which involves UFOs, comets, and of course, matching tracksuits and Nike running shoes. 
Be sure to check out the show notes for links to my guests on this episode, Professor Paul Midford. He's the director of the Japan program at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Thanks to everyone who's been sending me suggestions for show ideas. We've been getting a lot of really great ones. Everything from boy bands to stand-up comedy to 90s cartoons. Some really good stuff. So if you've got an idea, please send it my way. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can email me directly at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, I'd really appreciate if you could rate and review us. It will help spread the word and get more people to find this show. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can always listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, make sure you go back and check out some of our older episodes. The show was hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Gonzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.